Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we're going to tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This week, we're going to tell the second part of the story of my band. Oh yeah, one note. If you haven't listened to the first of these episodes, please stop and go listen before you start this one. Otherwise, none of this shit will make any sense. On September 28, 1999, we released our second album, Something to Write Home About, on Vagrant slash Heroes and Villains Records. We hadn't toured in months, and we had spent weeks in L.A. making the record. So when we finally could play shows again, we were out for blood. And that's where our story picks up. I spoke to Rich Egan about the album's release. I feel like the turnaround from turning it into getting the record out was really fast. Yeah, I think it was. It, uh, I'm Actually, I'm almost positive it was. Didn't it come out in October? September of 99. Yeah, and I think you turned it in in the summer, like early, like early to mid-summer. Yeah. And yeah. We had to get it. Well, first of all, it was not like we had anything else on our schedule. So we, we were able to turn it out pretty quick. When Something Right Home About was released, we intentionally started a very intense touring schedule. I spoke to Rob Pope about this. But then it was kind of like, we had already been like touring super hardcore, but then we just like doubled down on it, like starting in September of 99, which then as I've been doing these, that moment, the beginning of that tour is really clear to me. And then the end of that cycle, which was like the Weezer tour, is very clear to me. And then everything else is just one show. Like it's just like one long two year. Which which one is one show? From around October of 99 to March of 2001 just feels like a blur of just like. Well, you started drinking. That may have had something to do. Uh, during four minute mile, during the four minute mile touring, you weren't really drinking. Actually, that's true. I, I didn't, I didn't really start drinking until we were on a bus because I suddenly yeah didn't. we didn't get a bus until after that record came out I know we've talked about tour buses before but at the time it was still a really rare thing for a band in our scene to tour in one in fact we didn't know anyone else who had done it like we were we were operating on more of a micro level of like we were just doing our thing the way we've always done it and like meanwhile you guys are like I mean people like the record so that's great but it's like you guys had that you know you had show selling it and you had Kevin like you know coming up with ideas to promote it and and, and all mm-hmm. of and then we just basically committed to like I mean, we had just not toured for like six, eight months or had very little touring because we were waiting on this major label thing. So that's when it was like, all right, when this record comes out, we're going to go every single place in the country that'll have us. And we we did a, it's a 72, it's a 65 show, 72 day tour. I remember it well. Yep. Yep. We didn't want off dates. We were filling everything. You wouldn't let me and Ellis even have a blank spot on the schedule. No, it's it's the Mike Watt philosophy, you know, like especially yeah. especially because you know if you ain't playing, you're still paying. Exactly. If you're not veterans and stuff. Plus, I was 22, 20, 21. It's just like just go, just go, yeah. go, go. Burn. What's a day off? Yeah, but it was also to just because that was going to be our first tour in a bus, <clears throat> and it was it had to like to justify the expense of this bus it was like well we need to play as many shows as we can just remember introducing the idea of a bus because you know it was was a safety issue frankly for me because you know saves a day well we all have friends who flip their buses and stuff but saves a day had recently done flipped theirs and i was like you were doing these ridiculous drives and it was dangerous you know and i brought up the fact that you had 200 dates or whatever coming and that uh Maybe we should look at a bus. And it was kind of like, huh? I, and I remember Ellis had some friend draw. Remember that drawing that somebody made of you guys scooping yeah. money yep. into the bus? Uh-huh. 
it was a it was a anthropomorphized tour bus that had uh, a picture of someone shoveling coal, but the coal was money into the bus to feed yeah, it. It was brilliant. That was our tour book. Yeah, it was brilliant. And I think now was was that the at the drive-in tour that you first took the bus? Yeah, I, but it's funny to me. It is, but I want to say though, it's funny to me that you say it's a safety issue when you gave us this bus, this rinky rundown bus with a sociopath as a driver. Well, that's never still your first bus. Yeah. <laughs> That guy got a ticket doing 96 miles an hour in the bus. We were probably like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. (laughs) I didn't say that I vetted the driver in the bus. I just want you guys driving late at night. I have the tour books from that era. And if you go back and also look at the guarantees from that, it's like, we should not have been on a bus. But it was probably Rich Egan convincing us to be on tour for 70 fucking days in a row. I just remember, I, that was, in my mind, that was the justification for getting the bus, is that we were going to... Yeah, but I mean, in today's world, and even in today's dollars, those guarantees versus what buses cost... We shouldn't have been on a bus. Like, had we done that, had we done a, just a, maybe one or two of those tours in a van, we did we'd, the, all, we'd all have nicer houses. We did the first two weeks in a van with, with Hot Rod, and then we played Recycled Sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'm, I'm talking about the bus tours. I know. Had we done in either any of those in a van. Yeah, but we never we never lost money on those tours. Like, Yeah, but we weren't making very much. Everyone else was. Hindsight's twenty twenty, I guess. And that's why we're here, right? But uh, yeah, it was, it was just kind of like, you know, it, it was all like clubs and stuff. And then it seemed like by the time we got to the Northeast, because it started at CMJ and went south. Mm-hmm. By the time we got to the Northeast, which would have been like five weeks later, it was like yeah. selling out Bowery Ballroom, you know, which for us was like insanely huge. And it's just kind of right. like, but for us, it was sort of like, well, you know, there's more people here this time than there were last time. And then there'll be more people here next time than there were this time. And yeah, you took, I, you in particular took a very pragmatic view of the entire thing, which I always admired. While we were touring, little did we know that there was a groundswell happening all around us. We started that crazy long tour that started at CMJ when Burwanger rode out with us and we met Sinbad in Philadelphia. We met, Sin, we met Sinbad. We played Reggie at the church, the famous punk church in uh Philly. First Methodist? Is that what it is? Uh, Unitarian. That makes more sense. After the show, there's some, actually, I have a photograph that you can use for for the website of us meeting Sinbad at a Wawa (laughs) in Philadelphia. (laughs) But yeah, I just, everything was, I don't know, like people, I get asked all the time if we were cognizant in that moment of things, quote unquote, blowing up. But at least my observation, and I kind of feel like we were all on the same page, is that it was just a continuing of what had been happening. Where yeah, it was just everything, like, there was no moment. There was no, like, the single exploding on radio because we obviously never had any of that. But it was just a slow, steady climb of, like, everything seemed like, you know, that record started doing well, you know, 120 minutes going on tour, Green Day and Weezer. You know, it just kept, it kind of just kept building and building. While we were touring, little did we know there was a groundswell happening around us. But then you got to remember around you, the scene had blown up. And so it just kept this upward trajectory of something to write home about, which you'd put out two years before, kept finding newer audiences, you know? So hence Green Day and Weezer call. And it's like, uh, yeah, we're really, I think, I want to say we actually were about to pass on it. Maybe one of the, I don't remember which one, but we were going to, maybe the Weezer tour. Yeah. We decided probably not going to do it. And then we figured at the last minute to change our mind because I, I just burnt. I my, my guess is that if I had, if I had to guess knowing myself and my relationship to 
to my bandmates is that I probably didn't want to do it. And they were all like, are you fucking crazy? We have to do this. Yeah. No, leave that implied, but it was definitely you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Just call it like this, dude. It wasn't just us. The label was getting bigger and bigger as well. They had their own growing pains. I think Rich may have kept some of the chaos at Vagrant from us. I think Ryan saw it when yeah, he was living out there. That's managerial duty. I know, but I'm just, I just, it's interesting to me, like as an insider looking out or what I thought was an insider looking out that I didn't really know how during that time when, when our record was doing well, that they were on the verge of collapse at any given moment, it sounds like. Like I didn't know that whole thing about Cohen borrowing money from his parents yeah. and all that stuff. They don't, they don't want you to know that. I guess not. <laughs> yeah. He, you don't want to know that the fucking house of cards can come down at any moment. Like no way. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. They're they're I mean, as a label, they're trying to maintain that relationship. No way. They're not going to tell you that that's going on. To me it felt like we were working hard and our hard work was paying off. Sure. Yeah. When I talk to but, people from, like, when I talk to Rich, it's kind of like they couldn't keep up with the demand. Like, that's why they had to change distributors. That's why, like... Well, yeah, they were dealing with their own handful of shit. Our drummer, Ryan Pope, was living in L.A. at this time, during the brief moments that we weren't on tour anyway. He had more of an inside perspective to what was happening at the label. No one would advance them money to manufacture product. Vagrant. Mm, exactly. And so they started working with a porn DVD manufacturer. Yeah, I heard, I remember something about that. Who then just got disappeared by the mob or something. Like something, oh really, something really weird. Yeah, there's some weird, weird John Cohen. Um, some, bis- some shady movement. LA shit. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I also remember at the time, Cohen put $600,000. Um, they were in the hole, $600,000. And Cohen mortgaged his house. I think it was his parents' house. His parents' yeah. house, maybe, yeah. And um, I didn't know anything about this until I read it in that Punk Planet. Oh, yeah. I didn't read that. <laughs> so exp- explain that whole thing. Cause that, was that when they signed us, or was that... This was after they had signed us, and they basically ramped up to make the label and our band successful at the time, but they um, dug a big money money hole and... Because they had problems with distribution. Once again, like no one would front uh, manufacturing. So, yeah, Cohen kind of saved that with the very, this was, you know, within the first, what, six months to a year that we were associated with the label. It's so interesting to me that at least, I mean, you obviously would have had a better idea because you were there, but I had no idea about any of this. Like, I had no idea that, like, when we were touring on something at home about, and everything was going great, our record label was like continuously on the razor's edge of like completely going to shit, kind of, because they didn't have enough money. Yeah, I think that's, I feel like that's common yeah. for a startup. Think of it like a startup business. They, If they didn't have enough capital, m- capital to keep things moving, they could easily fail. After a year and a half of constant touring, we were ready for a break. But then some opportunities knocked. But by that time, by the time the Green Day and Weezer thing came around, we were already burnt out. Yeah, we were ready to... Make a new record. Basically, from September of 1999 to March of 2001, we were on tour. I think there was one year where we were on the road for almost 10 months in one year, which is insane. That's probably the year 2000. Yeah, it was insane. It was just like tour after tour. We did one tour that was 10 weeks long. That I was talking about that. It's the only, it's a, it was a 70 day tour, like no days off. And I had mono to start it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's still one of the only times we've ever had to cancel a gig because I lost my voice. We were supposed to play at the old grog shop in Cleveland, and it was 65 days into the tour uh, with like almost no days off. 
And I just remember I went to the rock doc and he gave me steroids and told me to take the night off. And then the next night we sold out the Majestic in Detroit. And I, I still wasn't confident that I could sing. And it was like the biggest show of the tour, but people sang so loud. Do you remember that? Like it was just, I don't know, maybe you weren't as cognizant of it because I was so nervous because I couldn't sing. You we there? were probably all drunk. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, you know, constantly touring. It was just like, you know, headlining tour, go to Europe, you know, headlining tour, go to Australia, open for Jebediah, go back to Japan. Or was that the first time we went to Japan? Was on that record. That makes sense. Go to Japan for the first time. And what, a, like, we were the first people that we knew in bands that got to Japan. And it's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's one of, actually, it's funny. I mean, it's not funny. I mean, it's just a fact that I think, like, per capita, we might have been more popular in Japan than anywhere else in the world, like record sales wise and stuff, which is pretty insane. So you get to like the beginning of 2001 and the Green Day offer comes in and it's like, okay, well, it's only two weeks. And then the Weezer offer comes in and we were just so burnt, but it was a huge tour. That tour was probably the turning point for our band where we went from a club band to a theater band. Like I could see it happen. Like I remember playing in San Francisco and we were playing Mass Pike at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. And we were pretty big in San Francisco already. Like we had our own following and just the entire crowd jumping up and down. And I think that was like the point where it's like, whoa, this is this is crazy. Did they know? I don't, I mean, I remember those shows, but did they know the songs? Oh yeah. Just, oh yeah. We got like voted. That's how, I think how we got that tour is that they asked like their fans who they wanted uh, to them to take out, yeah. And then we stole those cardboard cutouts. I, I just recently told my kids that story. They had never heard it before. One of the sponsors of the tour was a digital camera company. And so they had these life-size cutouts of the guys in Weezer. So you could get your photo taken. You could get a selfie or whatever before they had selfies. You could get your photo taken with the band, right? And at the end of the tour, they signed them. And there was we, like there were like four copies of them too. Yeah. We didn't steal the only copy. But you know what else I remember? That very last show, it was in San Diego. We smashed a bunch of gear. Like I smashed a guitar. James set his keyboard on fire. Yeah. And then we stole. We were out of control. We, well, we were just done. We were ready to go. And then we stole the Weezer cutouts. And also, the, I remember the, so we had stolen them. And one of the tour head people came out to our bus and we're like, we know you stole them. Just keep them. You've earned them. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, in Las Vegas, yeah, you- and we, that's when it happened. That's when we rented a limousine and took Rivers for a ride. There's like photos of us on, on the strip like with Rivers his- Cuomo with like 30 random people just on the strip in Vegas getting their photo taken with <laughs> us and Rivers Cuomo. It was a very fitting end to that tour. So we took a short break and then we got to writing. I remember ending that, yeah, the Weezer tour. I went to Hawaii for a month. Um, you went to Boston? Everyone kind no, of- No, I went back home. I was already married and living in Lawrence. Oh, then. Yeah. okay. Yeah, I got married in 2000. That was in the spring of 2001. So in my mind- Basically, from the fall of 1999 to the spring of 2001, it feels like we were on tour, like that whole time, <clears throat> starting with that first bus tour with Crazy Tony and ending with Weezer in the spring of 2001. And it feels like that's right around the time that the Vagrant America tour started happening. Were you still living in LA at that point? Yes. Were you getting, because I remember we did not want to do that tour because it was always on the table because we were still for the next six months, the biggest band on the label. And uh, we we were not only burnt, 
but my recollection, and I don't know if this is how everybody felt or just how I felt, was that we didn't want to be just another vagrant band. We, we didn't want to be in the vagrant business. We wanted to be in the Get Up Kids business. Yeah, I, I believe that that time we felt pretty highly of ourselves. Which us? Yeah, no way. I think I think that's I think that's true. And, and also, it, I think maybe the shift started happening where we were like, "Well, we have to be the most important band on the label." Or, "Wait, you're not going to answer my call? Who are you talking to?" Um, I think that attitude started to to uh, creep in. And so, yeah, we didn't want to do it. And also, if I remember correctly, Rich asked us to do it as a favor, and also that we'd be taking a pay cut. By doing it, and also we were burnt out and all that. So then that would have been, so you went to Hawaii. So then that would have been, we started riding on a wire that summer. And then that summer, I think it's, what did we determine the Chicago Vagrant America weekend was? It was in June of 2001. That was kind of our like, that was like, we were willing to do four nights in Chicago as a favor. Yeah, but wasn't that the second carnation of Mm-mm. that was the first it was the vagrant america tour it was i always thought it was kind of shady but it was like the tour poster advertised every band that was on the entire tour that's smart but, but it was done in legs so it was like someone that was smart it, it's smart but it's kind of <laughs> misleading <laughs> yes like our name was the biggest name on the poster and we only played four shows that's the that's when we were writing on a wire and we would play walking on a wire every night and that's when ellis said we should call the song career killer yeah Classic Ellis, Ellis fashion. <laughs> Cut right to the chase. Yeah, and, we, we would our, end every set with it, play like an eight-minute long like okay. pseudo jam. I think the more shit he gave you about it, the longer you played it. Mm-hmm. Like it became towards the end. And, you know, it's, an, it's adversarial love. Once we regrouped, it was time to start writing our next record. So we rented a space in No Law. That's North Lawrence to you non-townies. We started writing. In, we were all living in Lawrence except James, I think, in 2001. And we were writing at that disgusting practice space in North Lawrence that John Geary owned. And that, thank God, we had to get robbed. Because I yeah, think another no band got robbed from there, actually. But I remember we were practicing there uh, on 9-11. And I remember we, we showed up to practice. And we're all just kind of like, are we even going to do Like, are we even gonna do this today? Like, yeah, I rem- just- <laughs> you know what? I remember that, you know, those moments in time. You remember, I remember going, to, we went to the replay that night. Yeah, it was just such a weird night to, to be out. Very strange. Um, it was wild times. But basically, for the rest of 2001, we wrote and demoed like every day, right? That what became on a wire. Well, then you know what? But then we went out again because we went. It's we went and we played That's a true. benefit for 9/11 firefighters at with uh, Saves the Day that Ellis put on, like in November, like right after. We put out Eudora in 2001, which is the B sides record and which just, the photos from that are taken in front of that practice space oh, with that's the gra- right the grain silo with the train tracks yeah and so that we just kind of called that the Eudora. i think we just needed to make money but then the tour was already <laughs> well i mean it's our i job. think we you know we talked about that i think we sort of looked looked at that as sort of a an ending of of one chapter of our band you know what i mean yeah. like the the early chapter and then well because we were also like writing different stuff our musical tastes were expanding and our songwriting reflected that we were discovering older bands that were new to us. It was a weird time. We're, we were a bunch of like 19, 20, 21 year old kids that were, uh, for me, like I did, my older brother was into uh, like really bland hip hop. 
and luckily Public Enemy. Like I didn't, no one was telling me about Fugazi or the Minutemen or or uh, any of those bands. All and then all of us discovered fucking classic rock all at the same time. Like suddenly it was like, holy fuck, Led Zeppelin. Whoa, guitar solos. It was this weird formative era where we were challenged by a totally different thing than Thurston Moore and Ian Mackay. I think it's also a point where we started getting more into like song craft. Yeah, the, yeah. Like the, we we were all going through our bullshit Beatles phase and unfortunately we were doing that in public. <laughs> oh, I also remember like you're, you're in Ryan's musicianship and the way you guys were like locking in together like had more, it took a, a much like a mature jump from something at home about to on a wire. Jim was starting to become more of a lead guitar player. So I, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot. We were thinking about it more. We were conceptualizing about it more as opposed to just being like, Oh, that felt good at practice when you did that. And, and none of us know how, how to play with each other. And we were lucky that we were a band for a handful of years where what we were all doing made sense and worked. And then, uh, then we figured out how to, actually craft songs in a way that is probably a little more traditional and maybe more boring. So now we're just trying to fuck that up. (laughs) During this time, we wrote and demoed so many songs that would eventually become on a wire. We knew we wanted to work with a producer, so we started shopping around for one. Did we send those demos to Vagrant too, or just to the producers? I'm sure Rich heard them. Yeah, just, yeah, we shared it with with Rich. Did he give you any feedback? Because it it was, they were different sounding. He did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what, is, what did he say? He said, I mean, you guys can make an art record if you want to, but I'm just saying. He said art record? Pretty sure he said that. Nice. Like, I, an art record. I get it, but <laughs> he goes, this is a, you know, a drastic turn from your previous material. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Not that we would have listened anyway. We were also like the most cranky people in the fucking world. What do you mean by that? I just mean we weren't going to listen to anyone. Like he wasn't like, even if he had feedback, which I wish he would have, I can understand why he wouldn't have said a fucking word to us. Yeah, that that is something that like I I think- We had crawled up our own asshole. The only person who would say anything to us was Ellis. Yeah, and and he told us to name a song Career Killer and Grunge Pig. Grunge Pig stuck, so, (laughs) because we couldn't think of a better title. I guess, do you remember... Like how how did we end up work meeting Scott Litt or working with was it just We had a laundry list of producers and that was when I started to get into um well I, I felt like it was like okay we need to make a, a produced record. And I think we all felt that. We had a laundry list of people that we wanted to work with. I think Jim Jim and Ryan brought up Steven Street. Steven Street. We talked we uh I talked to we wanted to work with John Leckie. It was basically anybody Radiohead had worked with. Oh, and then, uh, uh, what's his name, who passed away, did the super drag? Yeah, Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn. That would have been great, too. And he was he was into it because because our, our reference was, we really love that super drag record. Couldn't give a shit about that Blink-182 record. <laughs> which, was all, which was all he was getting at the time. Yeah, he was it, getting, it was yeah. all Green Day and, and Blink-182. We decided to work with the producer, Scott Litt. He had worked with R.E.M. and The Replacements, along with many, many others. It was Rich's idea. To work with him specifically? He threw it at us, and that's interesting. What was his reasoning for that? Because he made so many amazing records, and we we were... Um, at that time, I remember we were like, we want to make like biggest record ever. We I knew were, we wanted to work with like a producer, producer, like a name. Yeah, exactly. We were, we like had in our heads at that point that we wanted to be on the radio, if I remember correctly. Scott Litt. Had had pretty good success rate with that. To Incubus, say the least. REM. I mean, we can go on stuff. and on. Yeah. 
yeah. So he, I think we sent, remember we sent music out to Stephen Street and uh, Scott Litt. Did Stephen Street make that Promise Ring record? He, he did. Yeah, that record's good. But we got the best feedback from Scott Litt. That's that. And then he came out to Lawrence and hung out with us. We did some proper pre-production with Scott and Lawrence. He suggested that we make the record in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but there was one hiccup. This is something I do remember that like there was this thing where we got to Connecticut and then he refused to start recording until he got like an advance or something like that. Do you remember that? I I don't, I don't remember that now. But I just remember. A, but it, now that you're saying it, it kind of rings a bell. I just remember Rich was freaking out about it. But yeah, why the fuck not? He had already been to Kansas once or twice to work on demos. And if you're in the if you're in the studio making the record and you haven't gotten anything from the, there was probably the first independent label record he made. God knows how many years. Well, what was it about him that we wanted to? I mean, other than REM he, is a pretty good career path to follow. That's true. The studio in Connecticut was owned by Peter Cadis, who would be engineering the record. This was before he went on to produce records for Interpol, Frightened Rabbit, and win a Grammy with The National. But I remember, so we were talking to Scott, and he was he had met Peter Cadis, and he was like, I met this guy, he's got this awesome studio in a house in Connecticut, we can all live in the house, and then the studio's on the third floor. And it would be this sort of like... It's really neat. It's a, I mean, like it's a like Victorian a, mansion... But so when did we go to Connecticut? Because Scott was like, it was in, it was February, beginning of February. It was, the, it was freezing cold, and I don't think I left a one block radius very often. <laughs> that was it was kind of depressing, really. It was. I mean, weird... we went to we went to the we went to Manhattan a couple of times. Did, that, you know, that's what we did because I remember my wife flew out, and we did. Uh, we had a couple couple wild weekends to blow. You guys went steam. to go see the Strokes, a secret show with the Strokes. Oh, that was incredible! We got to see the Strokes. At the, the Mercury night, Lounge? The night before they uh, they played on Saturday Night Live. It was friggin' badass in front of like like all of Saturday Night Live's cast were there. I remember James talking to Horatio Sands at the bar. Macaulay Co- Macaulay Culkin was there, like models everywhere. It was it was amazing. Was that the <laughs> night the Saves the Day guys got arrested and they were trying to get you to 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 spring them from a paddy wagon? Yeah, I don't that's a story for another time. So many things of that record I loved. It's like a love-hate relationship. But one of the things I I really enjoyed was like it was it was it was just a neat experience to stay in this one house, all of us cooking together, and yeah, playing. Would, we we bought a foosball table for the basement and donated it to the studio. You guys had your like weed den in the basement, and then. <laughs> I would I would do a lot of the cooking and we you guys and that's when like the foosball thing really started taking off with with you guys to the to the point where like I I stopped playing because Ryan and Rob were getting like so crazy competitive about foosball. One of the things I remember, I was roommates with James and James had this little like Elisa's drum machine and I would try and I would tr- be trying to go to sleep and James would have his headphones on and I don't know if you can hear this but this is what it would sound like. Because he'd be tapping on the drum machine and just keeping me up all night. It would drive me freaking crazy. Staying at Peter's house was a lot of fun, but making the record didn't go so smoothly. And things got more tense when it came time to mix the thing. It was basically like we finished the record. You and Ryan stayed in New York for mixing. To mix it. I went home. My daughter was born. And then we left for tour like three weeks after she was born. Uh, So I was not really paying attention. I was just in like, you know, new, new life change 
mode. I wasn't really like paying that much attention to like what was going on with, with Vagrant or like, did you get, when you and Ryan were mixing with Scott and Peter, did you get any, any feedback from anybody? Any from? Uh, not really constructive feedback that, uh, no. I mean, honestly, like we were in the bubble at that point. We, I mean, fuck, how long were we in Connecticut for? I remember it as being four weeks in Connecticut and then you guys stayed another two. Because we went to New York. and Where did you mix it at? At the Hit Factory. Ooh. Uh, it didn't turn out any hits. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but no, I mean, it was like when we first got, because Scott really wanted to go there and mix it because he didn't, he never felt like Peter's studio was pro enough. Uh so we get there and we spend a week mixing on this big giant SSL console and all this crazy gear and blah, blah, blah. And we're Ryan and I are taking smoke breaks in a room that Michael Jackson recorded Thriller in. And, and then at some point, everyone's looking around at each other and we're like, this sounds worse. They did it Peter's? Yeah. <laughs> we went back to Peter's. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we, See, we were is- supposed to spend two weeks at the Hit Factory and we left. It went back to Peter's and re- and spent another week mixing and finished the record there because it actually it sounded better at Peter's. That's how like not in like I was totally in another world having a kid that like I don't even remember. I, I mean, I guess I remember it now that you say it. It makes sense. But like, I don't think I was even cognizant at the time. I knew you guys were in New York and I knew that like, yeah, because I mean, I knew got, that Peter and Scott were fighting. Yeah. And then those sessions, the mixing sessions, particularly it, it, after you guys had left and it was just Ryan and I, uh, their their fights got worse, and there was there were some uh, very questionable decisions in the mixing process. I mean, engineering and rec- and tracking with Scott was hard for us, and then mixing with him was like that's the reverb choice you're gonna make oh, on the snare. Story. Like, yeah. which decade are we in? <laughs> so there there were a lot of those where it was like, are you kidding me? And then then Peter kind of became our mouthpiece to Scott and it wasn't a fun time. Those two weeks got worse, but I still, I still got along with Scott at the end of it. Yeah. I never not got along with Scott, but he also kind of stayed out of, like he didn't get up in my shit at all for anything. Like the way that he did with like Jim and, and James, you know, like, I don't know. We knew the record we had made was a bit different than our last one, but really that was the point. We had already made something to write home about. This was something else. One thing I will say is that, like, I don't think we thought we were making that weird of a record. Like, I, I think we just thought we were making kind of a, a next step. I assumed our, our fans were growing with us and we're getting into other things, too. Like, I still like Fugazi, but I'm also getting into this band. Yeah, it's like, I, I like Wilco and I like Refused. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's cool either way. But yeah, the- we made the record we made. It's said and done. And I think in the long run, it was good for us because it didn't keep us pigeonholed that we felt like we are able to try other things. But in hindsight, I think there was things we could have done to maybe, I don't know, ease into the transition of uh, maybe at the time it would have been impossible. Like we would have just said, fuck you. Yeah, that's whoever. what I think. I think but, if anybody told us that we were making a bad decision, we would have fired them. But I think the, in hindsight, we probably should have, I don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> I guess yeah, Ellis, people gave us too much trust, maybe. you know. Ellis, I remember when we were talking about having Overdue be the first single, and he was like, I think you need to, and ironically, the Japanese label made Stay Gone the first single, which was a way, makes more sense as a transition from something you're at home about into On a Wire. But we were just like, 
No, that's our favorite song on the record. So that's the first single, like taking nothing else into consideration. And I remember Ellis just being like, you need to spoon feed these kids if you're, and I was just like, shut up, man. At the time, I know we had been on 120 minutes and, and on MTV and that was like really big. But one thing is that we weren't really ever on the radio. And you got to think, and I remember, I think it was someone at K-Rock and you could say that this isn't a true story, but I, I, I feel like I, this is what was told to Rich Egan that like the head programmer person was like, you know, if they would have just made a record that sounded like something to write home about, we'd be playing it. And it's like, well, we did make a record that sounded like something to write home about <laughs> called Something to Write Home About. And you were you playing fu- it. You, you guys were only playing Limp Biscuit and Corn. Exactly. That's exactly what the radio was. Alternative radio was Limp Biscuit and Corn when we put out Something to Write Home About. And then like brand new and taking back Sunday start getting on the radio and it's just like well if you had made something that it's like man no that's not it's it's that like would be one step ahead just yeah I we don't know it's I mean, kind of it's frustrating you know but now thinking about I don't think we understood that radio was transitioning like that's something to write home about really helped you know move this and then of course Jimmy World puts out uh, Bleed American all right, that was the, 2001. The, then too. the floodgates just just opened up, and I think if we knew, it wouldn't have changed. It wouldn't have changed anything. I think it would have changed maybe the the tone of the record, like the like the heaviness of the record. Now, I'm not saying the songs have to be totally different, but like people, like when we per- perform those songs live, I think people got it more. Like, and and I remember even Scott Litt seeing us and like, shit, I should have seen you guys live. Like he, that it's almost like then he finally got our band because he saw the crowd reaction. Well, that's the other thing too. That's the first record that we didn't really play. I mean, we played a couple of those songs in Chicago at the Vagrant America tour, but like, you know, we didn't like tour on those songs. You know what I mean? Like we didn't, they they were kind of like... I think a live record of those songs probably would have been a better transition. You know what I mean? Just the, the feel of it. In case you missed what Jim just said, Scott Litt had never seen our band play live. On top of that, he had never heard our first two albums. The only songs of ours he'd ever heard were the demos we had sent him for On a Wire. Okay, so I'm trying to think, because like, there's the whole thing about like, you know, his input, and, and we've talked about it before internally about how kind of, kind of was disregarding our past albums. And we kind of intentionally did that, I feel like. Uh, we, were, we were celebrating the fact that he didn't, had never heard something to write home about. I remember making that record, and then he came to see us play at Irving Plaza, and he was like, that's what you guys sound like? <laughs> Because he had only heard the new demos for what yes. became on a wire, yeah. and and uh, just a weird like stance to take. I, I mean, feel like you can blame him. I blame what we I blame to. both parties. Uh, it's not it's not a great sounding record. I'm not proud of it. And uh, oh, there's good songs on it. There's some turds on there, but there's some good ones. I feel like um, we fucked up. We hired the wrong person. We made kind of a lazy batch of songs, but I understand why we also did. I mean, in my in my recollection of it, we had toured like fucking crazy for two years, and we essentially every fucking night a promoter was putting on a band that essentially that just wanted to be us, and it was driving us fucking mad to see all these. I mean, there were fucking bands covering us before we played. Yeah, well, that only happened. That only happened one. I think one time. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we wanted to make a record that didn't sound like all those bands that were trying to sound like us. So in 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 hindsight, we were trying to make a record that didn't sound like us, and we succeeded in that. So we should pat ourselves on the back for it, and we hired the right producer for that. But was it the right move in our career to be successful? Maybe not. I, but we made the arty move. Yeah, I I still look on back on it as a net positive because it sort of initially establishes this sort of like stubbornness that we have of just like good or good or bad we're going to be true to what we what we want and what we wanted yeah. what we wanted at the time was to do something different yeah we're we're a band that makes pretty um timely decisions that are based in real time timely decisions based in real time yes okay <laughs> Like, this is what we're into right now, so this is what we're going to do, and that's it. And uh, that phase may, may only last for six months, and this is my, what this is going to be what comes out of it, but that's it. That's what you get. When we were on the On A Wire tour, and it's, it was weird because we were playing the biggest shows of our career, headlining the biggest shows of our career, but it felt like we were getting negative feedback, at least in the press. Uh-uh. On A Wire got the best press we our band has ever had. I know we got a good review in Rolling Stone, but I yeah. thought we got like panned but everywhere that was, else. No. Something right home about got panned in Spin, Pitchfork, everywhere else. On a wire got got decent reviews so how throughout we, the press. How did we determine cuz the shows were big and we were getting good reviews, so why did we feel like it wasn't Because we expected our fan base to be as ecstatic and wild as they were two years before when we were playing those songs that were 20 times more ecstatic and wild. But we, but they didn't follow that train of thought. And, na- and in hindsight, I don't blame them either. We, we, were, we were showing up at these shows and we were being like, hey, remember, remember us? Now we're going to give you a little bit of a math problem, you know? And, and play this weird country song that has this weird psychedelic part in it and then <laughs> and then we but we also still expect you to chant to like throw your fists in the air and have a fucking party with the, everyone was confused we were confused they were confused uh, i don't know vagrant was confused maybe yeah of course of course yeah do you remember having any it was a confusing time i think any of those moments where like there is that sort of cultural shift where there's this sort of like new interjection of music that happens and we were lucky to be part of that i think there's a confusing aftermath i think also too because in the even in the time period from when we stopped touring something at home about so you know 2001 2002 where that scene because of a lot of our contemporaries and label mates at that point and people on our record label were like the scene was getting more mainstream and it was like, and then Caraba happened and that was a, a whole different thing. Like, I guess that's, I've never thought about it that way, that it was just like, we wanted people to be singing along like they were for the old stuff to like songs that on a, on a different sounding record that had only been out for like a week. Of course. Yeah. We had, a, we had weird expectations of our fans and we can't blame them for having those same expectations of us. Can't we though? <laughs> I mean, I mean, we... But anyway, the On A Wire tour... It was the first time, you know, like those, those shows were huge and people were stoked and we did have the sense enough to know that we still needed to play the hits, you know? So we would, but we wanted to play, I, I've said this before, we wanted to play all of On A Wire every yeah. single night. By the way, that record was successful. Like it sold a lot of copies, even if like, uh, you know, it wasn't something to write home about part two. Right. But we would play all of, we'd play all 12 songs from On A Wire. We ended up playing for like two, two and a half hours every night. So obnoxious. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but I remember that was when the reviews started coming out and it was kind of like, we had never gotten good reviews 
like kind of emo famously pitchfork gave us sig gave something to write home about a two and it's a someone made a meme of it that's like looking for intelligent life on earth and they look at the pitchfork review of something to write home about the, and then you they know just what leave. <laughs> but i i was fond of saying at the time that the only place that gave on a wire glowing review was rolling stone and so it's just like all right fuck you guys then i'll take it who also <laughs> then gave us a terrible review for guilt show so what are you gonna do <laughs> Playing the whole record every night really changed the songs. Well, I mean, you, you kind of work the bugs out as far as like what works and what doesn't work. And then you find how they work live, you know? And, then and like also, the crowd interaction of a, that yeah, changes and, the feel of a song. and Also just like kind of how loud and how fast it's supposed to be to like, like uh, there's a song on, on On A Wire called Wish You Were Here that is kind of... On the on on a wire, it kind of sounds sort of alt country y, you know, like kind of Wil Wilco-y. But then we relearned it recently for a live stream. It just sounds More like, like replacements. Or it something, sounds like the replacements, yeah. yeah. And it's just like, oh, this is what that was supposed to sound like. It's like the guitars are louder, the the drums. But Scott, are, but of course, Scott worked on the Quiet Replacements album and not <laughs> not the early stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it's. I mean, I think that we have a better understanding of it now as far as like what's going to transition like into a live thing that I think maybe we kind of figured out on guilt show, but um, maybe not. I don't know. We definitely got it on the last record, but yeah, I, it's, it's kind of a, it's just sort of like that 10,000 hours thing. You know what I mean? Which is like the more that you, the more that you do it, the better you get at it in theory. So in regards to like vagrant, I remember it felt kind of lukewarm from them. Do you, does that how you remember? Like, I don't, I don't think Rich was like negative about it, but he didn't seem like super excited about it. Do you get that feeling? I, I really don't remember. I think we were so in our own heads. We just didn't care. (laughs) Not like we were egomaniacs, but I think like you said, like you said before, like it wouldn't have changed anything. Like, I think we were so on our path of what we thought but this is what happens when you listen to like Lawrence Townies, remember? Where you like of what's of what's cool and what's like we sometimes thought too much of the art and not enough about the business and maybe and big picture things and like if we thought something was like inauthentic, you know, I can people can criticize the Get Up Kids and they love to criticize the Get Up Kids, but the the one thing that I think is always true about our band is we've never done anything that we didn't want to do or felt like we always felt like we were sincere in whatever we put out, you know, and we didn't want to <laughs> literally, kill. literally the only thing we ever did that was insincere was play that fucking crazy radio show with Nickelback. And even then we were just like, this is such a fucking crazy story. Let's <laughs> just kind of roll with it. But yeah, it was the first time when we, so we started that tour and it was the first time like Pete, the, all those shows were sold out. It was like the, the biggest tour. We did two nights at uh, the Fillmore in San Francisco. You know, it's like, Insane. It was insane. Like it was, we were a theater band. We took out full production, a light guy. We did, I mean, we sold out, what's the club that's not there anymore in New York City? Roseland. I mean, that, and I remember, I mean, we, and we weren't on the radio. You know, we, we, that's like insane. (laughs) That, that was the only real band start, like right about then, I think Jimmy World getting on the radio. But at the same time, it was very obvious. They put out a pop, I mean, like the middle is such a pop song that it's like not crazy that it would be on the radio. No. But I think there was a point, I don't want to say, I don't, I mean, we made our own bed, but 
it's not even resentment. It is kind of like, you know, though you feel like you helped lay the groundwork for something. And I mean, I'm not going to compare ourselves to the Ramones. The Ramones are the Ramones and, and one of the most important bands. But I could see the Ramones who helped sort of lay a foundation of something and never really, I think they have like one gold record. Like that's it, you know? And then all these bands that sound just like them start getting bigger and bigger and sort of, you know, we helped open that door, yet we sort of didn't get that mainstream success. I mean, what a boo-hoo for the get-up kids, right? But it, it, it it's kind of... I would have liked to have, have probably, I don't know, made a lot of m- more money. <laughs> <laughs> I think in that moment in the like 2001, 2002, you did, yeah, I, I'd even forgotten about Jimmy World, but just like within our own record label, it was like yeah, Saves, Dash, Saves yeah. was getting airplay and then so was the trio, at least with rock radio. And then Dashboard is its own kind of thing. But then, yeah, there was like Brand New and, and Taking Back Sunday and like bands that... Wasn't like that who we knew, but not very well. Yeah, I mean, brand new were like opening up for us. It you know they were Dubin's friend, Mike Dubin's buddies. That's that's how I knew brand new. I'm like, okay, they're friends with Mike. But I don't know. I I never thought of us as like I never. You've always been more ear to the ground about radio than than I was. I wanted to be an indie rock band. You know what I mean? Like I was more like want to be Arches a Loaf or something. I'm, I don't know. I wanted I wanted my kids not to have to pay for college. No, but. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about money. There's obviously ways to make money without being on the radio. Not everybody saw it that way. Here's Ryan Pope. I thought things were going great after we released that. But for the first time, we had radio play. We were on the biggest tour we'd ever done. Um, I remember being pretty, like, pretty happy during that. Why was the general... Then why did we not, like, what... Because we kind of just... We did that tour, and I remember we went to Europe. Mm-hmm. But then it sort of felt like, okay, we need to regroup. And, like... Do you think that was in because of the response to the record or was it? Nope. I think it was because we were burning out, um, especially you. I think that's what was going on more than, than um, what you had just had a kid. We started turning things down. Though we were playing the biggest shows of our career, we weren't getting the reaction from the crowd we had hoped for. I was in an especially dark place because I'd left for tour three weeks after my daughter was born. Apparently, our frustration was showing. Mac McGoffin from Superchunk even talked about it in an interview. Oh, right. I remember his quote. Yeah. And he was like, those guys seemed miserable. And meanwhile, like every night they'd go out and people were going wild. It, that's not the, that is not the exact quote at all. But um, it was something, along, something those along those lines where he, like Mac could tell that we were miserable because we weren't getting the reaction we wanted. Meanwhile, he was like, uh, that's a pretty great reaction they're getting. On top of all that, things were changing at our record label. When did the when did Interscope happen and all that? So my understanding is that happened. It was like late two thousand one. Because I'll say that is where I sort of started having a rift in my feelings for Vagrant. I don't think I ever actually recovered from that of like feeling like I could. I don't know. I don't want to say trust rich, but things definitely changed a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of like not feeling as much of a like as much of a priority, and at least. that's not even that's not even it. That's not even it. When when Rich came to us and and set, was saying that, you know, Interscope was going to buy Vagrant or whatever, I pretty much thought, okay, then you should release us from our contract. <laughs> that's really what I wanted because I felt like we didn't sign to a major label. 
And now you're signing that deal and I'm watching all these other bands get successful and like saves the day signing an obnoxiously big contract, which they'll probably tell you with DreamWorks and all these things. And it's now, I just felt like the 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 whole dynamic of I'm a manager and I'm also a label owner. And like that, I think that's when the line of this isn't like, it just wasn't work like working for me then where I felt before it was more like, Hey, we're just in this together kind of thing. And then it felt like a massive conflict of interest. Yeah. And I remember I got in a big fight with Rich and our business manager, but I felt like I was the only person who was sort of I just you were more pissed I, I, about that. Than- I mean, to this day, I think it's I think Rich well, probably should have let us out of our contract. But I know they probably wouldn't have got the deal done without the get of kids on the label, you know, as as part of the deal. But it def I just yeah. Well, I mean, something- I've, mo- I've moved on, everybody. But in that moment, <laughs> I was really fucking pissed off. I thought it was kind of shitty. In a way, signing to Vagrant in the first place was really just a stopgap measure. It was like, we needed to get off of Doghouse. We need, you know, we need to put this record out because we've, we're just sitting on it. And then we're going to put this record out on our manager's label. And then we're going to sign to a major label. And and then it was like, something at home out blows up. And they're like, oh, you can basically do anything you could do on a major label, but still own 51% of your masters and have this great royalty rate and stuff. And so that's how we ended up spending a month in Connecticut with working with Scott Litt. And then at that point, they do the Interscope deal. And you, you are right. We should have gotten something from that. You know what I mean? Like we... Because we didn't sign to a major label specifically, we we signed. To I, that, and that's and that was what I thought was complete bullshit. Like we did not sign to Interscope. We signed to your label, and now you, I look. They built a great thing, and they worked hard too, and they got these other bands. And I and I know if you ask Rich, he'll he'll say you know how big of a part we were of that. I just think it was truly the point where. I just couldn't get past this the conflict of interest there. Where before I didn't think there was one. And then it like it I did get into this thing of like they were in the like they were in the vagrant business at that point. Like we're we're exclusively in the get up kids business. You know what I mean? And so in the beginning it felt like, you know, vagrant and the get up kids were like one thing, kind of. I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Memory is a funny thing. I remember Jim being mad at the time, but what Rob's about to say, I have no recollection of at all. We got offered to get upstream. Did we? I don't remember that. I had, I mean, Ryan and I were in Rich's hotel room at the Soho Grand in New York, and he showed us the, a long list of numbers that were like, here, and he was like, here's what I want you guys to take. And Ryan and I were probably Why? a couple, a few gin and tonics in and going like, that's a great idea, Rich. That looks like a good number. I don't know. Why? I, in my recollection, like, we self-sabot that was the year of self-sabotaging of bad decisions. I don't remember anything about us being upstreamed being on the table. I feel like it was like But there was all, there it, was, it was something we wanted but then Rich wanted us to stay with Vagrant. I don't remember. I think Rich would have fought for us no matter whichever direction we wanted to go. Right. I agree with at that. At that point. But at the same time he, he, he was he was also kind of like I don't know guys you're I don't know what you Yeah, yeah, we were we were we turned ourselves into the most confusing band on the label instead of being the fucking flagship band. I got into a point at that time period of, of just whenever I would do interviews and people would ask about how we're not the biggest band on the label anymore. I got fond of saying, that's okay if we're not the biggest band on the label. We're totally content just being the best band on the label. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I mean that's a good attitude to have. Liam Gallagher. <laughs> Regardless of all this, we decided to regroup and make a new record. Only this time there was a twist. 
We wanted to take our recording budget and buy a studio in the sleepy town of Eudora, Kansas, to make the record with our producer friend, Ed Rose. Thus, Black Lodge Recording was born. So how do we, how do we come to the decision then to, to buy Black Lodge? Because I remember well, that— Well, we'd had a horrible experience with a, with a big-name producer. That's true, true. But right, I, right? Isn't that the story? We knew we—I mean, we worked with Ed on and off, did all of the, like, the first EP, and then I guess the first two EPs, and then— He did all the demos. He did serious batch of demos for On A Wire, too. Oh, yeah, those are the ones that got stolen from Black Lodge. Oh, yeah. An intern at the lodge stole a hard drive of on a wire demos and put them online. Real cool, man. Real cool. We wanted to make our next record with Ed, and rather than take it in advance, we wanted to buy the recording studio. Uh, And so that I remember that was a whole because, like, it was kind of one of those things where, like, you know, our contract said we could get this much money for our third record, but then our second record didn't do as well as our first record. And so it's sort of a like a floor and a ceiling that happens if you hit something. Yeah, um, remember that because John did have a have a particular bone to pick with that because he's like, well, yeah, but it's not like we're participating in things that go into the studio, you know, down the line for other bands. And I was just like, dude, just work it out, just figure it out. They want to make another record. Let's get going because I thought it was important that you guys got back on the horse, you know? Yeah, because it was uh, it, it hurt, you know, on a wire. It it stung for all of us. I don't think we were cognizant of it at the time, but making the record with Ed was kind of us going back to our roots. The last thing they needed was us showing up being like, who should we record with? When we hadn't when we hadn't listened to them for five fucking years, suddenly we're asking them <laughs> <laughs> for their opinion. No way. Yeah, it was a definite like like a confidence like I mean we weren't ever super confident. It's weird because you talk about like saying we weren't super confident, but then we were super like I mean I, I'm fuck saying you, that, I'm not gonna do what you tell me kind of there was a lot of that. Well if our band would have stayed together, it made sense because it was basically our headquarters. And when we weren't using it, it was a working recording studio. So we were just looking at it as an investment and in the long run saves us money to make music, right? That in was theory. our logic we were able to buy the studio was not because of a recording advance. It was because we sold our imprint. That's that's how we paid. Is that how we did it? It's 100% how we paid for it. I thought we sold it later than that. Interesting, because that's only, like, so we had that. It was not very long. And then four years then? Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm completely misremembering that I had it in my head that we got a, a larger than we deserved advance to make Guilt Show, and we spent the bulk of it on buying the studio. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all, it's all the, the same, same money. Exactly. But, yeah. Making what would become our fourth album, Guilt Show, was fun, at least for some of us. Ooh, I remember having so much fun. I personally, just because we had our own playground, <clears throat> um, we had all this fun gear that we just purchased. And, and we were writing in Rob's basement. Uh-huh. We were able to... We spent a ton of time on that record. I don't know, two months? Felt like forever. I think it was split up a lot because you went on tour with Reggie and I went on tour with New Ams. Jim went on his honeymoon. He really would just kind of show up randomly. He wouldn't. Who, James? Yeah. Jim, too. I remember Jim not being very involved in a lot of stuff. That record was Rob and I and Ed in the studio all the time. Um, James showed up, you know, a lot of times and kicked ass and then left. He would show up just randomly like we yeah. wouldn't know he was going to be there and then when he would be there it would be like okay let's mic up the piano because mm, yeah let's get let's get keys down on these tracks um i remember there for about three hour stretches three or four then you'd have to you'd get out of there and i remember jim coming in sitting in the corner and 
either showing up and being fully just like angry, angry guy in the corner or depressed guy in the corner or show up with high energy and want to work. There's never wasn't a lot of lot of middle ground on that. Do you think that was because we didn't do the two songs that he had submitted? Yes. I think that didn't help. Maybe we weren't getting along as well as we we had in the past. Well, hindsight Maybe being wrong, just like we were we were needing a break and we should have taken a break as opposed to just doubling down on work. Perhaps or also everyone had starting besides me, everyone had families at the time or or significant others and yeah. everybody got married within two years of each other yeah in the course of two years um but i don't know we were also running or i remember i remember mainly good good memories from that but i do remember that there wasn't a whole lot of band like full band in a room no it really wasn't there was it was it was very compartmentalized ed kind of being the glue held it together i think because <clears throat> there definitely wasn't a lot uh, it was not a, a communal communal effort it was a hard record to make, actually, when I look back at it, just because of the disconnect it felt like, comparative, comparatively to other records we've done. Well, I mean, the records, two records previous to that, we were all living in a different city together and just focused on the task at hand, as opposed to this where it was like we were trying to like work from home, sort of. Um, I know I certainly was. Yeah, I remember... The three of us doing tons of demos in your basement and then setting up the B room at the studio. And like Ed would be working on stuff in the A room and you and I remember the whole, all that Mellotron sample stuff in uh, conversation was all you and James in the B room, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were deep in it. That was, um, there wasn't a big collective. No, we were never like all in the same room at the same time. Like, I don't think, I don't think we ever tracked as a whole band. I don't think so either. Burnout, life changes, frustration, fighting. You can probably see where this is going. So it felt like there was about to be new life in the band and things were going to go our way. And then you didn't want to go on tour. Don't give me that. That was super, super burnt. And I was... Sure. Defend yourself. Go ahead. I don't have to defend myself. I was I was in a very... But am I lying? No. Yeah. Okay. I didn't I didn't want to go on tour. I needed a break. But it wasn't like, like a control move or anything. It was like, I would have gotten worse if I hadn't done something. So maybe we should have waited to put the record out. I mean, it was, it was we sh- you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and everything, but just like... This business eventually all becomes pressure. It's like, there's somebody telling you, you, you rely on your bandmates and you rely on your label and a manager and a booking agent and all this stuff and everybody's telling you all this stuff to do at the exact time that it's supposed to be the most important time to do it. If you don't do it at this time, you're going to miss out on this opportunity and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, we all have personal lives. We probably just shouldn't have put that record out for six months and just taken a break. But we were coming off the record that everyone was like, well, that was a weird one, you know? I've even said this, like, I think if the Get Up Kids weren't successful and making money, I probably would have quit before yeah, that, like making. I think that I would have. Like, I was pretty unhappy. I was sick of everybody. Matt was sick of touring. Well, and I, I was. I mean, we were all sick of each other. But the record came out, and we embarked on the beginning of what was going to be a full touring cycle. But my darkness got to be too much, and I couldn't hide it anymore. I mean, we toured. We went to Europe. I mean, we did like an underplay tour in the spring, and then we went to Europe. And did like an underplay in Europe. Was that when we did the Barfly shows? Yes. And that's when we went to Japan with Sa- in Australia with Saves the Day. And it was like insane and massive. And that's when uh, Matt and we all decided this is, you were like very unhappy on stage. It's like, it's very obvious that this isn't going to, we can't continue. Yeah, I was, I wasn't happy. And then I remember 
we had a layover in Singapore and Ryan, no, it, was, it was, it was Hong Kong. It was Hong Kong. And Ryan, like, he was like, Hey, are you, you know, he like actually like, I was apparently visibly unhappy. And then we, in Australia, we kind of like had a meeting and I was just like, I, I need, I need a break. And I remember Rob saying, we either need to do this a hundred percent or not do it at all. And I was like, well, then I got to not do it at all. Cause I need a break. And then it was just, which is just so Ult- stupid. Ultimatum. Yeah. Like this fucking stupid ultimatum. I'm just like, guys, I'm just really burnt. And I think if I keep going, I'm going to like murder all of you. You know, like I just, it's, it makes so much sense now, but. Tour- Wait, are you sure you said, I'll either, you need a break. Yeah. I, you didn't say. I quit the band. The way I remember the conversation. Are you sure? The way, on a second. The, way I have, <laughs> the way I have always remembered the conversation because I remember having the conversation in my head a thousand times before going into the room was saying, I need a break. And Rob saying, we either do this 100% or we don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, then I guess I don't want to do it at all then. Uh, maybe. Okay. I, I guess that makes sense because at that point we had all of these. I remember all these opportunities and cool things getting cooked up for the band because we just put out the record. Right. We just went out and did these these um, did these um, tours to p- try and promote it, and under and we were underplaying them, so we basically had not even started making money yet on any of it. The record. That's when you were like, "I'm done. I need a break." Yeah, that's right. Okay, that makes sense. So we no, would have. We would have been. It wasn't. Like, it wasn't a thing. Like it was like I was depressed, and it was. It was ruining me and it was ruining the band for me and it was and we were gun-ho like let's do this but i i just wasn't i just wasn't there i was completely i mean i probably should have gone into therapy like the year before yeah and you know what i mean also we we should have been more sympathetic to the need to chill out for a bit i think which which you weren't exactly i can acknowledge that like we were still like young wild animals and then, but the, the worst part is that we, we had broken up and we knew it, but we already had commitments because we had, we had committed to doing this, uh, this dashboard confessional tour. It was thrice get up kids dashboard confessional. And I was so miserable on that entire tour. Like we must've, we were just awful. And I'm like, why are we, I've like, I've apologized to Chris Caraba because it was so, it's like, we just did not want to be on the road. I'm like, why are we even doing this? Their band's done. Well, I mean, we had a commitment. We needed the money. And, you know, we knew that Ellis would kill us if we didn't do it. But it was just, it was the only time that anybody had ever been like, you guys weren't very good tonight. Even you and Ellis were like, that set wasn't very good. You guys kind of sucked tonight. And I was just like, which I (laughs) remember it, dude, which I had never seen you guys suck, actually. Well, you hated each other. Yeah. Well, everybody hated me. And I, well, I was again, I'm going with the collective we. Okay. But it was. <laughs> I, you know what's kind of, I, my biggest takeaway from that, though, is uh, when you and Ellis being honest, like when you're just like, that wasn't good. Is that like, for better or for worse, this band can't fake it. Like we can't. No. Like we're not, we're not like trained entertainers. You know what I mean? And that's why it's like every show is like Jim talks all the time and it's funny and there's jokes and we make each other laugh and, you know, we're having beers before the show and, and just having a good time and like engaging people. And it's just kind of like, if we're mad at each other, then the show sucks and we just can't do yeah. it. Yeah, no, I think, I think that is definitely part of your charm and it's probably your Achilles heel when things aren't going right. But yeah. So we went on the seven week dashboard confessional Honda Civic tour, a band that had already broken up and wasn't getting along. 
So you do what you got to do to get through the day. It was miserable for me. I, I don't know what it was like for you guys. Well, we we had a good time. <laughs> the fact that we were, we were doing that seemed kind of ridiculous, but we upheld our end of the bargain and we made the most of it. I remember that we partied very hard on that tour and you were pretty distant and we'd go and we'd play for 30 minutes and we'd be done at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, do whatever it is we were doing at the time. Yeah, I don't remember it being that bad. I also at that time was cognizant to the fact that it was nice to get paid to play music. And I think I I was like, well, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to, you know, take this for granted, especially if our band's essentially breaking up. I think I just felt like I was living with four other guys who hated me at the time. And so it was, that was difficult and rightfully so I could understand you know, being mad at me, but it was hard to uh, sync up with everybody when I was feeling like everyone was super resentful of, of me. That makes sense. You isolated yourself. Up until 2004, like touring was like 60 to 70% of my year. And then suddenly it was like, oh, weird. This is what civilian life is like. Interesting. Like, I feel like I didn't talk to Ryan for like a year or something. Like, I remember seeing him in Lawrence. Like, I don't, like that time period where like Rob Sukon was living in Lawrence uh, and they were playing in Koufax. And I don't, I I didn't talk to him then either. I don't think I saw them for like a year. Before or after that, we got convinced. I remember we went to Peter Luger's with Ellis and Rich and they convinced us to do. A live record and a farewell. That's tour. what everybody wants. A live record. <laughs> the only album that we have put out that never recouped. <laughs> it's the live album. Is that true? That's funny. Yeah. If you go look at our royalty statements, it's always the one. Yeah, because uh, the live record and Eudora are on a separate contract. Because our, our three record contract was something right home about on a wire and guilt show. But I just remember being like, okay, fine, but only if we do it in like like weekenders. You know, and so then we recorded the live record of the Granada. We did two nights at the Granada. I think that sounds that sounds good, right? It's a decent sounding live record. And then, well, we had we owned a recording studio at that point, and so it was a lot of our gear, wasn't it? I mean, Ed engineered it, and we fixed up some stuff. And then we decided we had to do a live record. Like we needed a reason to go on a farewell tour for some reason. I don't. Well, know. I think that like what happened at that point was Mr. Egan and. Andrew both were like, all right, you idiots, this is what you want to do. Let's figure out a way to make, make it as profitable as possible, which is what they should have been doing. So they, they did that. <laughs> and um, that's why we ended up doing those shows. I was telling Jim, those farewell shows, I felt like we were... Yeah, that was fun. Like we were all like in the mindset of like, well, if this is going to be the end of it, yeah, I think let's make it a party. Everyone was having, having fun and, and had other things going on in their lives that allowed it to come together more like a reunion than a, a um, you know, oh, poor us. If the world is ending, we toast to it. I just remember thinking like we were just having too much fun drinking like it's a normal show and it should have been like, hey, we're recording these. We want to play. I mean, but actually, but then it probably would have been fake and insincere, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there was this this kind of uh, sort of a one last hurrah sort of vibe to both that recording and the farewell shows of just like, you know, fuck it. Like, let's just, you know, fuck it. Let's do it live kind of thing where it was just like, like our last show, quote unquote, at the Uptown in Kansas City, Ellis gave us a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue that we finished before we went on stage. So, and we- There were a lot of people drinking it. Give me a break. (laughs) And some of those shows, I remember, because 
people were like really like we played really well because we just didn't have any baggage at all. I remember Straylight Run. They played a couple of those were actually some of the best Get Up Kid shows ever. We had like, gosh, what's the band? Monine played with us. Limbeck played with us. And oh, the, Hold Steady played Hold, with us. Yeah, Hold Steady. Lucero. Yeah, we had Lucero. We had it, those were cool shows. Good bands. But yeah, they were just there was a sort of a, a freedom of of just being like, here we go. But the last show at the Uptown of the Farewell Tour was a, was really fun. Like it was a, it was a blast. At least that's how I remember it. Though we did drink a lot. And then yeah, that kind of ends our time at Vagrant. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like yeah, we, and then and then when we got back together, I don't even think it came up. Like we I don't were, know. And that was it. The band broke up. Looking back, there was nothing anyone could have done. When we started, the band was everything, but we were changing. Life was changing. We needed space to figure that out. Looking back on it now, I feel this, and this is this isn't blaming Rich or anything, but I feel like he didn't really try to keep us together as our manager. You know what I mean? Like, it was sort of like, okay, you're going to break up. Go do the dashboard tour, please. <laughs> you know, where... and But then I keep always go back. And, and I think about how we always say, we just needed a break from each other. Like, we just needed... It was... We were all married and people had been div- married, divorced. Matt, you had a, a kid. And I just... We just needed time. Like, now needed, it's very we obvious. Time. Yeah. We could have taken two years off. I could have done and made a solo record. And, you know, we all could have done other things and then come back. But I don't think at the time, I think there was so much resentment just around (laughs) so many things that it, no matter what, that's why I don't, I don't like blame Rich or anything. Cause I don't think in hindsight, it's obvious, but in the moment, I don't know if there's, was anything that, that he could have done, but. So, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of a, we made a good record, but we definitely weren't we weren't like a, co- a cohesive unit like we had been in the past. And it was just because we needed a break. And you're, you're right. No one told us that. No one, no one said, hey, maybe you guys need a, need a break. Not that we would have listened anyway, probably. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, like, that's my point. But at the end of the day, it just it, that's all, which I think a lot of bands probably don't understand that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, so it's, then, it's such a weird, being in a band is such a strange business. And going, you know, when you're just teenagers, to men and that cycle of any, it's so much easier when you look back on things, isn't it? Well, I mean, you're transitioning out of like, transitioning out of like, this is the only thing any of us do into now we have lives outside of the van. You know, you know, you know what I mean? the one, the hardest thing when the Get Up Kids broke up, I, w- I mean, I was still in a band, like people knew me, like a my friends, he's the band guy, but you do lose like um like a, a sense of identity a little bit when you're when, well, especially when, you're when you so, put ten you, ten years of your life into something, and, and you're so tied to that thing. Like that is who I am. It was our only job, you know, is just being in a band and these guys. So that's that. It it was a a weird transition. Three years after I quit the band, we reunited. We've been writing and recording and touring together ever since. We've actually been together longer the second time around than we were in the beginning. So in a way, we did get to take a break and regroup. We just had to go through a bunch of dramatic bullshit to do it. Accomplishing something that was ultimately very positive, but doing it in the most difficult way possible. That's very us, making real decisions in real time. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we'll tell the story of the anniversary and Kofax. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. 
You can support the GetUp Kids at patreon.com slash thegetupkids or catch us on tour this fall. Visit thegetupkids.com for more info. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us all again for the next episode.